You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Well, welcome, folks, to City Edge Church, Sunday, the 19th of April, 2020. I'm starting off each of these with the date because we're posting them up on Facebook. So, uh, and uh, and actually also on YouTube as well. So. Uh, just to give people a context for our, uh, the time this is delivered. but um, So, welcome everyone. As you know, we've been working through John, John's Gospel, and we've reached, finally, John Chapter 4. So, uh, so let's get started. If you've got your Bibles handy, would you open the book John Chapter 4, and uh, we'll begin at verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It didn't take Jesus very long to run into trouble with people. He upset the Pharisees when he tipped over the tables of the money changers and the animal traders in the temple courts back in chapter 2 of John. Then in chapter 3, we read that John the Baptist's disciples seemed to be getting jealous that Jesus was attracting more followers than their leader. And then the story continues in John chapter 4. It doesn't say it explicitly, but the text seems to imply that the Pharisees were trying to stir up trouble between John's followers and the disciples of Jesus. And it says in verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although, of course, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Now we know from the rest of the gospel that this opposition and the other gospels, this opposition will only escalate in the coming months and years. Jesus knew full well that the time would come for him to confront his opponents in a final showdown, culminating in his arrest and execution. But that time is not yet. For now, the Pharisees are trying to shut down Jesus by more subtle means. 
Jesus, of course, was not frightened of his opponents. He walked according to his father's plan and his father's timing, not anyone else's, not even his own. When people tried to push him along ahead of that plan, he regularly responded with, my time has not yet come. For now, though, in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Galilee is to the north of Judea, separated by a region known as Samaria. The most direct route to Galilee went straight through the middle of Samaria, but there were two other ways to get there that both bypassed Samaria. You could go around it by the coast road to the west, or you could cross over the Jordan and go up the east side. Both avoided going through Samaria. So there was more than one way to go to Galilee. Jesus didn't have to go that way. And actually, the Greek behind this verse suggested something more than having to go that way just because it was direct. It's much stronger than that in the Greek. Some translations actually bring it out a bit better when they say he needed to go through Samaria or it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Why was it necessary? Samaria was, in the eyes of the Jews, a spiritually polluted place that would contaminate them. Good law-abiding Jews of the day would avoid Samaria at all costs. They considered Samaritans to be half-breeds, heretics, enemies. A bit of history here will help us not only to understand the significance of this story, but also the significance of every other story in the Gospels that makes mention of Samaria and the Samaritans. The history goes back several hundred years. After King Solomon died, the kingdom of the 12 Hebrew tribes that had been united under him and his father David was split in two. The 10 northern tribes installed their own king and called themselves collectively Israel. The two southern tribes were ruled by Solomon's son Rehoboam and went by the name of Judah. The rivalry between them often led to wars, as they were led by a succession of kings. With a few notable exceptions, each successive king was worse than the previous one, adopting more and more idolatrous practices. Eventually, somewhere around 722 BC, the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom and carry off large numbers of Israelites into captivity. They then resettle the area with people from several other nations who bring with them all the idols that they worshipped in their home country. This is the region that becomes known as Samaria. These imported foreigners proceeded to intermarry with the Israelites that were left behind and formed a separate people of mixed blood. And rather than go to, down to Jerusalem to worship God, these Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They held to the first five books of the Bible, called the books of Moses or the law, but not to the rest of what's now our Old Testament. Instead, they blended the worship of the true God Yahweh with their idol worship. It tells us in 2 Kings 17.41, these nations feared the Lord and also <laughs> their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. 
A couple of hundred years later, when Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to beat, rebuild Jerusalem and the temple in Judah, it is their half-breed heretic cousins from Samaria who try to stop them. There was no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. Jews despised Samaritans. Samaritans detested Jews. And the animosity only intensified in the centuries leading up to the time of Christ. So when you read in the Gospels that Jesus healed 10 lepers and the only one who came back to thank him was a Samaritan, or when you read the story of the Good Samaritan, recognise that this was scandalous to the Pharisees and other devout Jews at the time. This wasn't like we Victorians like to have a good-natured dig at the Queenslanders about being a different breed. There was nothing good about Samaritans in the eyes of a Jew. They had no redeeming features, and to enter Samaritan territory was to risk your own relationship with a holy God. That didn't matter to Jesus, though. When John writes that he had to pass through Samaria, it wasn't by geographic necessity. It was because Jesus had a mission of mercy to perform, a divine appointment. That appointment was with a woman who had a checkered past. You'll recall that later on in the book of Acts, Jesus commissions his followers to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here, Jesus begins to model that missionary call to the ends of the earth, and he begins in Samaria. Verse 5, it tells us, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sychar is only a stone's throw, a stone's throw from Mount Gerizim and the Samaritan Temple. And Jesus arrived there around noon, hot, dusty and thirsty. While his disciples went into town to buy some food, he sat down for a rest at Jacob's well. Interesting, I think, that John wrote this gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so much of what John writes in this gospel makes clear that Jesus Christ is actually God. But he was also human. And John is never frightened to show the human side of Jesus. Anyway, this well was dug by Jacob nearly 2,000 years previously and was the place where Joseph's bones were buried. So it had a rich historical significance for both Jews and religious Samaritans. The well there was used by the locals as a water source because there were no reliable rivers or streams nearby. But it was unusual for anyone to go to the well to collect water in the middle of the day. It was just too hot. Most people would go there in the cool of the morning or the evening. That was also the time for the locals to catch up with each other to hear the latest gossip. The fact that this woman went alone in the heat of the day suggests something about her. And as we get further into the story, we may, we may be able to piece together a little bit more about her. Goes on to tell us in verse 7, 
a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's a bit of an understatement. Good, faithful Jews like the Pharisees and the rabbis vehemently despised the Samaritans and would refuse to deal with the Samaritans in any way. They would rather die of thirst than accept a drink from a Samaritan and drink out of the same cup. In fact, they took it so seriously that they believed that sharing a Samaritan's cup would make them so unclean that it could result in their eternal damnation. So we can imagine the woman's surprise that this Jew would ask her to share her water with him. He had no way of getting the water himself, so he was entirely dependent on her and her utensils for a drink. But it was unthinkable that he would ask her for a drink. I mentioned earlier that Jesus was here by divine appointment. He needed to go through Samaria. And he needed to go through Samaria because he needed to take the gospel to this woman. Why do I think this was a divine appointment and not just a chance encounter? Well, for one thing, there are no coincidences with God. But if Jesus needed to rest and drink, why wouldn't he just go into town with his disciples? He would have been guaranteed of finding what he needed there. Why go to a well that was likely to be, to be deserted in the middle of the day? Simply because he knew this woman would be there. He knew she would be there alone. And he knew that there would be no interruptions to his life-giving conversation with her. Remember, David wrote in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Jesus knew full well that this woman would come to the well alone in the heat of the day. And he already loved her enough to get out of his physical comfort zone to meet with her. Friends, he knows you too. He knows your thoughts. He knows your coming. He knows your going. He knows what you're going through. He knows your fears, your insecurities, your hurts, your hopes, your disappointments. And he comes to you with a message of hope and of life. Will you take the time out of your busy schedule to meet with him? Don't worry about your past. Don't even worry about your present. Don't worry about making yourself presentable to him. He knows your background and he comes seeking you anyway. This woman had nothing to bring to Jesus. She had nothing to offer him. She wasn't even seeking him. In fact, she was born far, far, far on the wrong side of the tracks. Surely she had too many strikes against her name for anyone to take her seriously. For most people, 
Maybe that was true, but not for Jesus. She makes an interesting con uh, contrast to the last in-depth conversation Jesus had with someone. You remember Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. Nicodemus was a Jew. She was a despised Samaritan. Nicodemus was an important teacher. She was an unknown. We don't even know her name. Nicodemus was a man. She was a woman. In that day, a man would not speak publicly to a woman, not even his wife. It was a breach of social custom. Nicodemus was respectable. She had a questionable past. Nicodemus knew, knew that Jesus was from God by the signs he was performing. She knew nothing about this stranger. Nicodemus sought out Jesus under the cover of darkness. She was sought out by Jesus in broad daylight. Nicodemus represented the orthodox religion. She was a follower of a heretical religion. Nicodemus is part of the religious in-group. She's an outcast. Nicodemus was dignified. She likely had no dignity. The contrast could hardly be more striking. And yet, for all their differences, they both had the same need. The need for rescue from their sin. And Jesus had time for both of them. And he spoke deep truths to both of them. And in fact, Jesus shared deeper truths with Nicodemus and this outcast woman than he had shared with anyone else so far, not even with his disciples. What does that tell us? It tells us that no one is so important, so well-educated, so respected that they don't need the good news of salvation that he brings. As one author has said, no one can rise so high as to be above salvation. And no one is so lowly, so despised, so rejected, that he won't come seeking them with that same good news of salvation. So none can seek too low to be beneath salvation. That applies to you and I, friends, and everyone we know. The gospel is for everyone. Most of the people we know live pretty comfortable lives. They don't think they need the gospel. They don't need religion. And if we've learned anything from the coronavirus crisis, it's that comfortable lives and steady jobs are not as secure as we once thought they were. If you're in the category of those questioning what this is all about, Jesus Christ has a message that you need to hear. But there are plenty of people in this world who, are, who fit more into the category of the Samaritan woman. Unknown, unwanted, misfits, outcasts, troubled, rejected, despised. The good news is for them too. It's especially for them. Remember Jesus reading the scroll in the synagogue of Isaiah in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came seeking the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. And he comes seeking them today too. Only today, he does his seeking through us. Do you know people who are poor, in bondage, oppressed, outcast, rejected? If you're a Christian, Jesus intends to use you to reach these people. How can you do that? Of course, you can pray for them. Nothing we do should be without prayer, asking our merciful Heavenly Father to extend His grace to them as well. And then one simple thing we can do is take the time to engage with them in conversation. When we bump into them on the street, especially those who may be sitting in the door of a supermarket begging, why not as well as throwing a couple of coins or a few dollars into their tub, stop and have a chat? Or why not buy them some breakfast? If you're not in a position to do that, and maybe you can't get out of the house in these days of lockdown, there are still plenty of charities that need financial support. They will do the work on your behalf. And it takes money for them to do their work. If that's the route that you must go, can I recommend that you support a Christian charity? One that will not only give them a drink of water, but will offer them living water that wells up to eternal life. And as well as providing bread for them to eat, will give them the bread of life. More pointedly, is there someone you've been avoiding because they're just so different from you that you feel uncomfortable around them? Has God been prompting you to connect with them, but you've been avoiding it? It's time to follow Jesus' lead and get out of your comfort zone for them. Let's face it, this virus won't last forever, and the food and drink that any of us have won't sustain us forever. But there is water and there is bread that lasts for eternity, and it's to be found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. I'll leave it there for this week, but maybe for far too long we Christians have expected the church, that nebulous entity, to reach out to people with the gospel. But most evangelism happens one-on-one, -on -one, not with big programs and revival meetings and mass rallies. They may have their place, maybe, but nothing quite matches the personal touch. Friends, what has Jesus done for you? If he has changed your life, you have something of infinite, eternal value to offer to these people. You don't need a theology degree to show that you care about them as a person, not as a target for your evangelistic program, not as a notch on your belt, but as a real, living valuable, made-in-the-image-of-God person. 
honour their dignity as Jesus honoured the dignity of this Samaritan woman. And let the Lord use whatever faltering words you have to bring living water to them. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you went out of your way to seek us out. You sought us in our sin, our rebellion, our rejection of you, and you sought us not because there was anything lovable in us, but because you are infinitely loving. Lord, we pray for those who, like the Samaritan woman, feel unloved and unlovely. We pray that you would show your love to people like you showed your love to her. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us to reach out to them with your good news. Take away our fear and uncertainty about engaging with people different from us and replace it, Lord, we pray, with a love for them as precious people made in your image. Would you use this strange new world we live in today to open doors for your gospel? We pray in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, Wednesday night, just as a reminder, we have Connect Group by Zoom, 7pm, and we'll be uh, watching the second part of the Who Is This Man video study. Keep your eyes open for a Zoom invite. I hope you can join us. And feel free to invite your friends. And next week, Mike will be sharing the Word of God with us. Please pray for him as he prepares this week. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.